Amen. Wow. I just got to be honest with you. I'm a bit of a mess today. I've been on the verge of tears many times in the last 24 hours, and worship was no exception as we navigate a pretty wild week, especially these last few days, and seeing what we see on the news and trying to take all that in and process it and ask what is our response and how how do we reflect Christ in a world literally on fire. And uh, I had to to just think for a moment about the timing of, of a new sermon series. This was originally planned to be right after Easter. We did the Jesus is the Subject series leading into Easter, had Easter, and then we're planning to have this series titled The Heart of a Disciple that would follow that uh, message and continue our theme for 2020 where we were to focus on discipleship throughout the year, every series, everything really focusing on discipleship and making that our main thrust. And I I have no question in my mind that inserting the In the Meantime series was the right thing to do, and yet I also marvel at the timing, the way things are lining up now. And that today is Pentecost Sunday, that this is Church Multiplication Sunday, as it's often referred to now, uh, where we focus on the Spirit coming upon the church in Acts chapter 2 and tongues of fire on Uh, were over the heads of the disciples and the people that were assembled there, and people from every nation, tribe, and tongue were united together as the Holy Spirit fire fell upon them, and the church was inaugurated. And today, thousands of years later, we celebrate that as Church Multiplication Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. And today, we're looking at a message titled... The Heart of a Disciple, uh, or a series titled The Heart of a Disciple, and a message that's titled On Fire. And that was not intentional, but it all lines up beautifully and powerfully. And you'll have an opportunity tonight uh, that I hope you will take to join with other believers across the country and around the world as the Wesleyan World Headquarters puts on an event called Together that was planned months ago um, and is being broadcast online that is focused on uh, praying together, worshiping together, uh, and and celebrating Pentecost and Church Multiplication Sunday. And I can't think of a time when our nation has needed to come together in prayer more. So I hope you'll take advantage of that opportunity. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern, which is 6 p.m. Central. And all you need to do is go to wesleyan.org slash together. Really simple. And spend an hour in prayer and worship together. But as we begin this new series and we talk about the heart of discipleship, we're talking about the core or the center of discipleship and what that really is and what is at the core and what is at the center of a disciple, the heart of a disciple. What's at the soul level, the passion, the emotion? What is at the center of all of that? And I love the image uh, that we found for the logo that has a cross at the center of that heart. And is Jesus at the center of our hearts, of our will and our emotion and our soul and our passion and the center of our very lives? Because the heart of a disciple has Christ at the very center. 
And so we're going to look at this subject, the heart of a disciple, from a number of different angles over the next at least six weeks, maybe seven. I've, I've got a lot to say on this subject, and I know there'll be at least six messages. There may be a seventh. But I want to begin today in Luke chapter 24. And keeping in mind, this was originally planned to start the week after Easter. Uh, on Easter morning, essentially, we would have uh, preached on Luke 24, 1 through 12, and looked at the resurrection and the empty tomb and the good news. And then this message would have followed that a week later. And the two on the road to Emmaus, perhaps you've heard this story before. But if you haven't, just keep in mind, that's the context. Jesus was just crucified a few days before, and then this very morning that we're reading about, these two had woken up and started to hear reports of an empty tomb, as we'll see in the narrative. And if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn it to Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. I'm going to read this in a long narrative uh, section, so you're welcome to just sit back and listen. But it's also great if you want to follow along. Here is what we read, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, the same day as the resurrection, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, with their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he, went, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? While, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way 
and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke the bread. So just to help us see the context and and put ourselves in this picture a little bit, we're told that they get up and they leave, and it's probably, you know, after breakfast, it's probably midday, early morning, or I'm sorry, mid-morning, and they're on their way to Emmaus, which is a town northwest of Jerusalem, and we're told it's about seven miles away. Now, when I think of seven miles, I think of 10 to 15 minutes in the car. But if you were trying to walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a better way to think about that would be to, if you walked out the front doors of Linwood Wesleyan Church and said, I need to walk to the airport, that's about seven miles. And you would walk down, or down to Minnesota Avenue, take a right, and you'd be heading north, and it would be a pretty easy go of it until you got over the river, and then you'd be walking uphill for several miles, and we can tell from the maps that there's quite a bit of topography between Jerusalem and Emmaus, so this would be a little bit more strenuous walk, and you're probably looking at a three or four hour journey at least. And so that's the setting by, on, on which they encounter Jesus. And when they encounter him, they don't see him at first. They don't recognize him. And we're told that they're disciples, but we know one of them was named Cleopas, so it's not one of the eleven, because we know at the end of the story that the eleven are back in the upper room, essentially, in that environment together in Jerusalem. So these were two of the other followers of Jesus, the other disciples of Jesus. And when Jesus asks them what they're talking about, In verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? We're told that they stood still with their faces downcast. That question, what are you talking about, stopped them in their tracks. And their faces were downcast. They were discouraged. They were dejected. And they couldn't believe that this person didn't know what they were talking about, didn't know what was happening and what had been happening around them. And I believe that they were downcast, and they were discouraged, and they were dejected for a couple of reasons. First, God had not done for them what they wanted him to do. God had not done for them what they wanted him to do. They had been expecting the Christ, the Messiah, to come and to deliver them and to redeem Israel. That's what they share. God had not done for them what they wanted him to do. But there's a more important reason that they're dejected and downcast on this day that Jesus encounters them on the road to Emmaus. They are dejected and downcast because they had not believed the reports of the resurrection. In fact, Cleopas recounts all the evidence himself. They had heard all of it. They just had refused to believe it. They had rejected it. Cleopas knew what had happened, but he did not believe that it had actually happened. That's why he was downcast. That's why he was dejected. And this illustrates the difference between being familiar with the facts and recognizing the reality that those facts represent. They were familiar with the facts of the resurrection, but they had not embraced the reality that those facts represent. I wonder if that speaks to anyone today. Perhaps God has not done for you what you wanted him to do, and you're downcast, and you're dejected. Or perhaps you're watching this, and you have never heard or have never believed the reports of the resurrection. 
And it illustrates the point that sometimes it's really hard to see Jesus for who he is. Sometimes it's really hard to see Jesus for who he really is. Now, literally, in this context, he's standing right in front of them, and they do not recognize him. He's standing in front of them in the resurrected flesh, which would have been totally unexpected had they not just heard that he had been resurrected, just as he said he would. And more figuratively, the whole arc of Jesus' life and ministry, they had been expecting a conquering king to come and to overthrow Roman oppression and to lead Israel into a new status as a world-dominating power. And instead, he came as a suffering servant who sacrificed his own life and died on behalf of all people everywhere. Sometimes it's hard to see Jesus for who he really is. Especially when we impose our worldview, our agenda, our to-do list, our list of needs upon him, his agenda, his worldview becomes invisible, unrecognizable. It's only when we surrender ourselves and our worldview and our agenda and the ways of this world to his worldview and his agenda that we can see him as he really is. It's only when we surrender ourselves to the upside-down kingdom, as scholars have called it, when in reality it's an upside-down world that we've been living in all our lives, and he comes with a right-side-up kingdom and invites us into it, and if we will not take our eyes off of the things of this world and fix them on him in his worldview, in his way of doing things, in his agenda, in his mission in the world, then we, we will only see ours. We have to reject this, let this go, and fix our eyes on this, because the two cannot coexist. One is up and one is down. We are either focused on the things of this world and on our agenda for the things of this world, or we are focused on Christ's. And as we focus on his, ours diminish. I think that's why Paul said that we have to no longer be conformed to this world, and the things of this world, but to be renewed through our minds and to focus on the ways of God, the ways that Christ presented to us. And as we do that, when his agenda and his worldview is in control, ours will disappear. And in the moment that they recognized him, they were elated. They went from being dejected and distressed and discouraged to being elated. And they said to each other in verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, opened our eyes to see reality as it really is, to get our eyes off of the things of this world and onto him, onto Christ's agenda, Christ's worldview. And I believe that their hearts burning is figurative language that talks about consuming me, consuming my flesh, my sinful nature, my motivations, clearing all of that away for his purposes, for his mission, for his agenda. Just as John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. I have to get my eyes off of this world and the things of this world and my agenda and fix them solidly on Christ's and see things through that lens. And that's our bottom line today. Don't get excited. We're not over. We're only about halfway there. I know I usually give the bottom line at the end. But the bottom line today is coming smack in the middle of this message. And that is this. Encountering Jesus 
Encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire. That when we encounter him, it sets our hearts on fire. It sets the heart of a disciple on fire. A disciple is a follower, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus. And when we encounter him, it sets our hearts on fire. And it was never intended to be a one-time thing, not even a weekly thing. Like we can encounter Christ and feel, feel our hearts stirring daily, multiple times a day. And encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire. It doesn't give us a big head. It doesn't lead to some sort of a passive indifference. And it certainly doesn't lead to legalism. It leads to a passion to serve, a desire to share that good news with others, and a hunger for impact. Encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire. And so I wonder, what gives you holy heartburn? What, when you feel that passion welling up within you, where, where does it focus? What things are you passionate about? What things does your heart burn for? Where is your passion to serve, your desire to share, and your hunger for impact? How does that get expressed? And I believe Jesus had a short list. He gave that short list of things that that were burning in his heart. He gave it at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown, at the very beginning of his public ministry, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to do certain things, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was Jesus' top five when he started his ministry. And he did a fantastic job. As you read the Gospels, that's what he was all about. He preached the good news. He, he uh, preached good news to the poor. He, sent, uh, he was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He brought recovery of sight to the blind, those who were spiritually blind. He released the oppressed and he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. He did a wonderful job. And at the very end of his ministry, we see what else was on his list, and it was discipleship. It was training all along, training this group of people to go and do what he had been doing, to proclaim recovery, to proclaim the gospel, to release the the captives, to remove spiritual blindness, and to release the oppressed. And I believe he did that Because he knew that true, biblical, Christ-centered, obedience-based discipleship was the only solution to poverty and to slavery, to spiritual blindness and to oppression. And I would go so far as to say it is the only permanent solution to the sickening, disturbing, and deeply troubling things that we have seen in our nation in this last week. And I believe that that true obedience-based discipleship inaugurates and sustains God's favor in our own lives individually and in our lives corporately. I believe it is the only lasting solution. It was God's plan A from the very beginning, and it has not failed. We have failed to carry it forward with the same passion. And you might be saying right now, well, that's a little pie in the sky, Pastor Mark. Isn't that a little idealistic, just discipleship? 
And I asked myself that question. And I was reminded of a quote by G.K. Chesterton, who was an English writer around the time of C.S. Lewis, maybe a little before him, but similar in style. And he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple in that we've made it far more complex than it needs to be, but it's not easy. And yet, if every single person in this world was a disciple of Jesus Christ, would the events of the past week have taken place? I think it's absolutely impossible for a follower of Jesus Christ, a heartfelt, obedience-based follower of Jesus Christ, to kneel on somebody's neck until they stop breathing. And I think it's equally impossible for a follower of Jesus Christ to burn down somebody else's store because they're angry. Discipleship really is the answer. And so my next question was, well, won't that take too long? Like even if all of us right here, you know, at Linwood, started discipling people, and I was, say that's 300 people. And so we disciple people for 12 months, and now they start discipling people. Well, then you go from 300 to 600, and two years it's 1,200. Like, that's going to take a long time, Pastor Mark. I know. So we better get started. We shouldn't wait, and we should stop looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. And when I look at the news, I see spiritual problems, deep, deep spiritual problems, and struggles between good and evil, between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And if we were training up disciples all along, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have today. And so we need to be refocused on discipleship. We need to make sure that the things that are, the, the Bible tells us are in the heart of a disciple are in our hearts as disciples. And so the first thing we have to do, we have to ask, what is discipleship? And maybe you're asking, like, I keep you know, adding all these words to it, like obedience-based and Christ-like and biblical discipleship. But at the core of discipleship is the process of disciple-making. That's what discipleship means. And I know you've looked up a word in the dictionary and found a, a, a definition that didn't really help all that much. If you don't know what discipleship is, hearing that it's the process of disciple-making doesn't help a lot unless we really dig into what is disciple-making. And I think there are three components of disciple-making that form a really good definition of disciple-making. And I have no idea why I didn't cross my mind to put these on a slide. But I'll say them several times so that you can write them down. Disciple-making is building a relationship with someone and helping them learn how to trust and follow Jesus. Disciple-making is building a relationship with someone and helping them learn how to trust and follow Jesus. That's what actually makes disciples, and it resonates beautifully with Jesus' original call to the disciples. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Come, along with me. There's relationship between Jesus and the original disciples. Follow me. They're learning to follow Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men. They're learning to trust him and to follow him. And at the very end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go. 
Go build relationships. Baptize them. Teach them to trust or help them to learn to trust me, to be baptized, to go on record, to make a public profession of their faith and teach them to obey. Help them learn how to follow me, how to obey. In each case, there's relationship that is designed to help trust and follow Jesus. And so... Sometimes that happens in the context of what probably comes to mind when we talk about discipleship. But it's not mere information transfer. It's not merely classes or studies. And it's not news, weather, and sports discipleship or news, weather, and sports fellowship where we get together and we maybe talk about a verse of Scripture and then we talk about politics and news and sports and the weather for the next hour and we call that discipleship. And that happens a lot. And that happens throughout the church. And it's not discipleship. It's not even traditional Sunday school or many small groups or a lot of Bible studies. And I'm growing in the awareness that those are good things, but they're predominantly fellowship. And where they would really be awesome is if they were the fellowship of a bunch of disciple makers getting together to be encouraged in the process of disciple making. And so your Sunday school class is 12 or 15 or 20 people who are all engaged in disciple making, building relationships with people to help them learn how to trust and follow Jesus. And they get together for a Sunday school class or they get together for a small group in order to encourage one another and exhort one another in that. But too often, those environments digress into listening to a stage on the stage on the stage, listening to somebody like me talk to a big room of people that are sitting in rows about Jesus or about the Bible or about God. And these are all good things. Do not hear me say these are bad things. I'm not saying that. But they're not necessarily making disciples. They're not necessarily building relationships with people to help them learn how to trust and follow Jesus. And that's the link that I want to build between all the things that we do in the American church, between Sunday morning church and between Sunday school and between pers- you know, small groups and, and Bible studies, which are all really good things, to create a link between them and people actually, the majority, the vast majority of people actually building relationships that help people learn to trust and follow Jesus. And so if you've been involved in one of those things, you've been coming to church, you've been going to a Sunday school class, you've been involved in a Bible study for more than 12 to 18 months and you're not actually building a relationship with somebody to teach them to trust and follow Jesus, then disciple making is not taking place. And that's what I want to see happen. Because I believe it would transform society. I believe it would transform our lives individually and our lives corporately if we were more doing life with each other as a guide by the side. That's disciple-making. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in biblical studies. You don't even have to fill somebody else's cup. You just empty yours. You just meet on a weekly basis, and you pour into them, and you talk about what is the Spirit showing you in the things that we're reading, in the, the Word of God, and what did you think about the message, and how does that resonate with your life, and how will you be different tomorrow because you came to church today, and who are you praying for to come into the fellowship, and who are you going to invite to be a part of a study, and who are you going to start discipling? And you do that on a weekly basis until everybody is engaged in disciple-making. And it grows. And it doesn't have to, it's not limited to the people that call Linwood their church home. Everybody at Linwood starts discipling two or three people. They don't have to be at Linwood. They could be outside. They could be people that you work with, neighbors. They could be family members. They could be all kinds of different things. 
And so I want to ask you, will you commit to disciple-making with me? Will you commit to that? Please. Will you please get intentional about building a relationship with one to three people with the express purpose of helping them learn how to trust and follow Jesus? And if you're not ready, would you intentionally commit to a relationship where you learn to trust and follow Jesus from someone else for 12 to 18 months, and then you go start. That's the goal. That's the vision. That was Jesus' plan A, that we would make disciples who make disciples, that we would go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. And I realized I've had a little bullet point in our weekly email for six weeks, and I've mentioned it twice from the stage. If you would like to be a part of a discipleship group, let me know. And it was a little bit of a test. I wanted to make sure it was in the email consistently, and I wanted to make sure I gave it voice at least twice. I got three, three, one, two, three people that responded from that. And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip. I know we're busy, and I know something's probably going to have to go out of your life in order to make this a priority if you're not already doing this. And I know that it's happening, so don't hear me screaming at you and saying it's not happening. I know it's happening, but I would say and I hope I'm wrong, I would say 10 to 20% of Linwood is engaged in the disciple-making process. And I would love to see that flip to be 80 to 90%. And that only the 10 to 20% that aren't are are just new enough that they haven't heard me talk about it enough to be involved in it. And I'm not trying to make it easier. In fact, I'm tired of trying to make it easier or more palatable or more exciting. I promise you, if you make a commitment to disciple-making, and to being engaged in the disciple-making process. It will be difficult. It will be challenging. The enemy will come against you. It will be messy because it involves relationships, and relationships are messy. It will be frustrating, and it will be uncomfortable. But it will also be inspiring. It will also be encouraging. It will also be fulfilling. And most importantly, it will be fruitful. And if you build relationships with people and with the express purpose of teaching them how to trust and follow Jesus, and they do the same, and they do the same, in three years or eight years or 12 years from now, you've got this whole group of people that can be kind of tied back to you. That's fruitfulness. That's fruitfulness. As we engage in disciple-making, we make disciples who make disciples. We get to become spiritual parents and spiritual grandparents and spiritual great-grandparents. And if you've never seen a pair of great-grandparents sitting in a crowded room with all their kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids running around and just see that settled, contented look come over their face, you can have that feeling as a disciple-maker who makes disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And so I want to know if you'll commit to disciple-making, if you'll commit to building a relationship with one to three other people, meeting with them on a weekly basis for 60 to 90 minutes, spending 15 to 30 minutes a day in the Banding Together journal, 
we've been talking about this all year. A lot of these have gone out. I know a lot of people are reading, following the reading plan. I know there are three or four groups that have started meeting, and I'm thrilled about that. I'd love there to be 30 or 40 groups by the end of the year. It's really simple. You read a chapter or two of Scripture a day. You spend some time reflecting on that in a simple process, Scripture observation application prayer. You write that out, and then you meet on a weekly basis. And the guide is right there inside the front cover for a discipleship group to meet and to go through and talk about what you're learning and answer some, talk about some questions that have to do with accountability and to pray for the lost and to pray for who is God laying in your path that you can, encounter, you can develop a relationship with and help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. Now, I don't really want to play matchmaker to get these groups started, but I will if I have to. I, I really think that if you're feeling led, and I don't want it to just be the response to a, a sermon on this, I, I really want you to pray about this and move forward in this and know who and when and how you're going to do this and start making invitations. And start making invitations for people to, to, to be in a group with you. But I've also developed a response form that I want you to take advantage of. It's, it's a simple little survey. We've started doing these. They're a great way to collect information and to help us know. And so if you're feeling like, yes, I want to be involved, I want to make a commitment to disciple making, just go to the website that's on the screen, tinyurl.com slash Linwood Discipleship. And let me know. And if you need help, I would just love it if there were some people that said, I would love to lead a group, but I don't know who to ask. And there were some people that would say, I would love to be in a group, but I don't have a leader, and we could just match them together. But I don't know if it'll work that smoothly or not. Maybe you have some people that are already on mind, and you're like, I need to just ask these three people and get started. They don't have to be from Linwood. They can be from anywhere. Just get started. And if you're already engaged in discipleship, I would love to hear about that so that I can be praying with you, be praying for you. The other thing that I want to do is, is start doing some monthly coaching groups for disciple makers, for disciple makers. So, uh, so getting together on a monthly basis and learning together, learning from each other specific to disciple making and some ongoing training and those types of things. So, so that's why if you're already engaged in disciple making, I want to I hear about it. Please fill out the form and let me know so that I can be engaged. And I'm not going to micromanage it, I promise. That's not the point. The point is to get as many people as possible engaged in disciple making. And as we finish our, our story here, if we come back to Luke 24 and sort of put a bow on all of this, we read that the two, they ran back, these two disciples, they hot-footed it back to Jerusalem. They had already walked all the way to the airport. They turn around and they run back to Linwood, okay? So that's now that we're talking about 14 miles in one day. And they get all the way back there to tell the disciples their hearts had been burning along the road. Then they recognize Jesus. All the pieces fit together. They realize it's true. He has risen from the dead. He has overcome the grave. He didn't just deliver us from Roman oppression and set up a new kingdom. He delivered the whole world, all people for all time from sin and from death. He has ushered in a new reality. Everything has changed. And they were so excited they couldn't wait to run back and tell people about it with their hearts on fire. And if you read the rest of the story, and I hope you will, Jesus literally walks into the room 
after they get there. He walks into the room. And he says, peace be with you. Our world is crying out for peace. It is crying out for Jesus to walk into the room. To walk into Minneapolis and Los Angeles and Seattle and Denver and Miami. To walk into these places. Because when he walks into the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light that he brings. When he walks into the room, every heart starts burning. When he walks into the room, sickness starts to vanish. We've just come through a season where sickness was the focus of every newscast and every press conference. But when he walks into the room, it starts to vanish. And every hopeless situation ceases to exist. Do you know how many times I have said those words in the last week? Because so many of the situations that we see in the world around us just seem so hopeless. But when he walks into the room, every hopeless situation ceases to exist. And the dead even begin to rise. Because there's resurrection life in everything he does. John 20, 21, Jesus says in this same setting, the same appearance to the disciples in the upper room, he says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me to make disciples, I am sending you to make disciples. And I want to leave you with this question. What if... Jesus walked into the room every time you walked into the room? What if you were so close to Jesus, so powerfully connected with Jesus, so overlapped with his worldview, his agenda, his mission, that every time you walk into a room, Jesus walks into a room. Every time you walk into a room, you bring Jesus in and everything changes and darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring because you and Jesus are walking into that room together. What if every heart started burning? What if every hopeless situation ceased to exist when you walked into a room because Jesus walked in with you and it was clear, it was evident that things had changed? That's my hope. That's my prayer. That's what I want. I want Linwood to be a disciple-making church, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Will you join me? Will you commit? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is such a gift to us. There is so much that we can learn from it, from you, from your example. I pray for every person who has heard this message or who will hear this message at some point in the future that we would respond in faith to what we have heard. I pray against the enemy who wants to come in and who wants to confuse the conviction of your Holy Spirit with guilt or with shame, which are his tools, not yours. I pray that anybody who's feeling conviction right now would make a decision to pursue you wholeheartedly, to grow as a disciple, 
to be discipled or to start making disciples. I pray that those would be the only two responses to this message, that we would respond in faith by either being discipled or to start making disciples, to start building relationships to help people learn to trust and follow you. Help us, God. Help us individually. Help us as a church, as a family of families. Help us as a nation. We're so broken. And yet you can put us back together. Have your way, God. Help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross despised its shame and are now seated at the right hand of God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we